this morning, I want to finish the all-too-short series on the Holy Spirit. <laughs> I say all-too-short. You're probably thinking all-too-long. But I mean, for me, it seems all-too-short. We've covered a lot of territory, talking about the new birth, the fruit of the Spirit, talking about also the gifts of the Spirit. And I want to talk this morning about something I'm calling the sacred presence. Because when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we're talking about, quite literally, the presence of God in our lives. And since the Spirit is the Holy Spirit, we're talking about a sacred presence. And so being a Christian is neither more nor less than living in the sacred presence. And furthermore, the sacred presence of God making its home within us. Now that's life transforming. But when you put it just in those terms, living in the sacred presence and the sacred presence filling our lives, it seems like we should be stepping into paradise. The minute you receive Christ, everything changes so there is no more suffering and struggle and sin. And everyone here who knows how important it is that, that Jesus Christ by his spirit has come to live within us, everyone who knows that firsthand also knows that there is still struggle and suffering and sin. So how do we put all that together? How do we think about all of that? Well, this morning, I want to take a short journey through four short passages of Scripture, all from Paul's letters that speak to the role of the Holy Spirit in the Christian's life. And I want to come in the fourth one to talk specifically about how it is we are to live out the fullness of the Spirit, because that's what we want. We want to be filled with the Spirit as we live for Jesus Christ. So I want to begin in Ephesians chapter 1. Paul says this in verse 13 and 14. You also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now, the first thing, Paul says that when you've received the Spirit, the Spirit promised by God, the gift of the Spirit is God's seal upon our lives. So in the ancient world, when a king wanted to mark out some document as belonging to him, a document that no one could touch lest they arouse the wrath of the king, and no one wanted to arouse the wrath of the king, when the king had such a document, he would take a seal and press it into wax so that everyone knew this document was his. Well, according to Paul, when God gives us his Holy Spirit, that's what he does. He seals us. He marks us out as his own. And he says the gift of the Holy Spirit that marks us as belonging to God is a deposit guaranteeing an inheritance we haven't completely received yet. So, gosh, it's been, it's been almost eight years ago that Linda and I signed the papers and bought a house. But, of course, you know, we didn't actually buy the house. What we did was put some money down. And the small amount that we paid 
down for the house, the deposit, is nothing compared to what we're going to pay for that house before it's all over and done with. Now, I say it was small. It wasn't small to us. And it was enough, it was enough for the bank to say, okay, they have skin in the game. They're going, to, they're going to come through and they're going to pay the whole amount in time. I see Sam Brown over here nodding his head. He was involved in all of this. So the bank's getting their money, Sam. You know that. But it's a deposit. I am, we are paying for the house with the same kind of dollars that we used in the deposit. But the deposit was just a small portion of it. So God gives us his Holy Spirit as a deposit. He doesn't give us the wholeness of our redemption. Not yet. That awaits the future. But what he gives us is the beginning of that redemption. He's made a deposit. And he's shown by giving us his spirit, his commitment to us. That the good work he has begun, he's going to finish. And the deposit that he makes, giving his spirit, is life transforming. It absolutely changes us from the inside out, but not completely and not all at once. And that's why there is still struggle and suffering and even sin in the Christian life. Because in this life, we live, you might say, caught between two ages, the old age of sin and death, but also the new age of the Spirit. They overlap, and they overlap in our very being. Hence, we're born again, and our lives are transformed. So we say, then we turn around and say, well, even though your life is transformed, don't think that you won't have battles. Don't think that you won't have struggles. You can, you can forgive people who hear that and they think, wait a minute, which is it? Well, it's both. It's both because God has begun to redeem us by giving us his deposit. And you know what? Just as he's made the deposit, he's going to pay off in the end. There's going to be a transformation. Now, the second passage comes from Romans chapter 8. And if you go to Romans 8, you'll see that whole chapter is about life in the Spirit. God has given His Spirit to Christians and transforms them. And about in the middle of the chapter, He also talks about the whole creation and how in spite of what God has done through Christ, in spite of the fact that he's poured out his Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, the creation is still, I think Paul would use the word fallen. The creation is still in bondage to decay. That's another phrase that he uses. The creation goes wrong. It's twisted in different ways. It, it falls short of God's intended purpose. But God, in time, is going to put all things right. That's what Paul says. But in the passage that we're going to read, he speaks of creation itself as groaning as in childbirth. In other words, he's personifying the creation as suffering. It's not enjoying the, the freedom that God intends for it, but the suffering is the suffering of childbirth because there is going to be a new heavens and a new earth. Good things are coming. So even the creation lives in a tension between 
the old age and the new age. And Paul goes on to say, we do as well. Now, that's all to try to set the stage for reading the verses themselves. I want to read Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 22. Listen to what he says. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Here he speaks of first fruits in Ephesians. He talks about deposit. It's the same thing. We have the first fruits of the Spirit, and we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Then down to verse 26. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. There's that groaning word again. All right, let's, let's reflect on what Paul's saying here. The whole world is subject to decay, subject to trouble. It's not yet been liberated by God's creative power so that we have a new heavens and a new earth. And we ourselves, as part of this world, we groan in ourselves as well. We live in these bodies that are not yet fully redeemed. So we get sick and we suffer in our illness. We deal with depression and anxiety that's, that's rooted in part, at least, in our very biology. We are vulnerable in our relationships and we are constantly struggling against ourselves. It seems like we want to do what's right and yet we don't seem to have the willpower to do it. And there are things we don't want to do, we hate, and yet we find ourselves drawn to them. So there is struggle and there is suffering in this world. Paul says that's true of the whole world and it's true of all of us. He says here, let me read it again. We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, or you might say the deposit of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. We yearn for that. We eagerly await for that. And yet we groan in ourselves. We suffer in ourselves because we have to wait. And sometimes our suffering is such that we can't even pray. And yet, and yet there is this presence, this sacred presence in us, the Spirit himself who intercedes for us through wordless groans. What Paul is saying is this. There are times in this world when you have the Holy Spirit, where you sense the Holy Spirit, not in joy and victory, but you sense the Holy Spirit as that hope, that seed of hope within you that keeps you going when it would be easy to quit. And you sense the Holy Spirit as your heart reaches out to God when you don't even know how to pray. And maybe you can't pray, and yet you know that God is with you and you're connected with God 
There's that yearning for God in your heart. The very groaning suggests hope because you know, even though you're suffering, God is going to bring new life out of this. Remember a few years ago when I came back after, after my brother's funeral, and I was sharing with you at that time just my own experience, and I mean, it was, it was, it was a brutal time. And I can say two things that would surprise people, I suppose. Number one, God never seemed nearer to me than during that period. My brother murdered, dealing with the grief of that, and yet I sensed God's nearness. Number two, I probably didn't pray for 10 days. It's not that I wasn't angry with God. I felt like God was near. And I'm not saying that I didn't pray at all. I'm just saying that, that I wasn't in my normal time each day setting apart for prayer because I didn't know what to say. Sometimes there just aren't words. There just aren't words. But you see, the Holy Spirit was at work within me not giving me happiness and joy in a light heart in the midst of a situation where all those things would be, would be obscenities. How can you be happy and joyful and have a light heart in such a situation? That wouldn't be right. And many of you, you're facing things that you're, you're not happy. Well, how can you be happy? You'd be strange to be happy going through what you're going through. But here's the thing. The Holy Spirit within us even when we're groaning in suffering and struggle, there is this groaning that entails hope because it's like the labor pains of a woman who's in great pain and yet is expecting the birth of a child. See, we still have hope and we're still connected with God because the Spirit connects us with God. Our very suffering becomes a prayer to God. Do you see what I'm saying about all this? So, yes, we receive the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is with us even in the times of suffering and struggle. And also when we sin. And we're tempted to think that's all God's going to have to do with me. I've just sinned and, and, and that's it. In fact, I talk with people all the time who are convinced that God is speaking to them a very severe and harsh word, a demanding word. Get it straight, repent, change. And it's not long after listening to them that I realize the Holy Spirit isn't speaking that. The enemy may be speaking that, Tapes playing in your head from your past may be speaking that, but not the Spirit. Let me read to you another passage from that same chapter, Romans 8, verses 15 and 16. Listen to this. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship, and by Him we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. What Paul's talking about here is how law 
can cause us to be afraid. The commandments are given and we fall short. And we can be afraid of the holy God who's given the law because we are sinners. But Paul says, that's not the spirit we've received. We've not given, been given a spirit to inspire fear, but rather this sense of being a child of God. Paul even says it is this spirit who gives us adoption, adoption to sonship. Now, you might read that and think, oh, yeah, you know, a little patriarchal language in the Bible, sonship. What about just adoption to be in the family? Why sonship? But that's not what's going on here. You see, Paul has something very specific in mind. Most peoples in the ancient world did not adopt children, or when they did, they rarely adopted babies. Generally, they would adopt, in Rome at least, they would adopt young men who had come of age. You would have a man, a wealthy man, who wanted his his inheritance to pass on and his family tree to continue And so he would adopt a young man to inherit his fortune, who'd become part of the family. And so this was very different than the way we adopt children today. But here's what's interesting. The paterfamilias in ancient Rome, the the authoritarian father, could do anything with his children. He could put them away on a whim. They talk back to him. He could say, that's done. You're out. And that would be the final word. The law would back him up. There are even records of fathers putting children to death. The absolute power of the father knew almost no checks. However, if the father adopted a young man to be his heir, adopted to sonship, the father was never allowed to put him away. He could put away his own child, his own flesh and blood, but he couldn't put away someone he had adopted to be his heir. So when Paul is talking about this adoption to sonship, he has something very specific in mind. He's talking about how by the Holy Spirit, we have been brought into God's family, and that is permanent and unchanging. And within us, he says, there is this this witness of the Spirit with our spirit, that we are children of God, and we find deep within our heart this this cry, Abba, Father. Abba meaning not exactly daddy, as it's often said, but it, it was a term of both reverence and affection that was used in the family. Dear Father, dear Father. So the Spirit comes and gives us this yearning for God, this sense that God is our Father. Now, sometimes, sometimes you may not sense that because it's covered over with so much condemnation, so much guilt, so much shame that your mind isn't quiet enough to sense it. But what I'm telling you now is when it seems like God is pouring on the guilt and condemnation, It isn't God because the Spirit of God is working to redeem and to lift and to build up. And even at the Spirit's most severe discipline, there's still the affirmation that we're the child 
of God, adopted to sonship. Men and women adopted to sonship, that is, heirs of God. Isn't that good? So we talk about receiving the Spirit. Well, God gives us the deposit. He seals us, your mind. He deposits full redemption, the, 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 the you know, earnest payment, you might say, of the full redemption that is to come. We experience that. Now, it doesn't mean we don't suffer. doesn't mean we don't struggle. doesn't mean we don't have to deal with sin. But we know that in it all, there is within us a continued hope, a connection with God, a sense that we belong to God, and all will be well because of it. Now, the final passage I want to go to speaks about how we are to live for God then. We, we don't want to live in constant struggle. There's, there's more to the Christian life than that, and Paul talks about that in Ephesians chapter 5. So I want to read to you from that. Now, I'm not going to read from the NIV, which is generally the... Pa- Uh, translation I use, because in this particular passage, they don't translate it literally enough for you to see the grammatical structure. And I I want you to see the structure. It's very important. Let me just read it in a more literal rendering right now. Ephesians 5.18, and do not get drunk with wine, which is debauchery, but be filled by or with the Holy Spirit speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for each other in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Okay, he says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, if you think about alcohol and what it does to us, it causes us to... to come under its influence, right? When we say somebody's driving under the influence, that's because they've had too much alcohol to drink. And Paul's saying that don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Come under the influence of the Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit, the person of the Spirit, be dominant in your life. Another way to say it is when someone is drunk, it's because they've given themselves over to alcohol. When someone is filled with the Spirit, it's because they've given themselves over to the Spirit. Now, in the Greek, this is number one, an imperative. That is, it it is a command. Number two, it is in the present tense, which means it's a continual thing. In other words, you're not just to be filled with the Spirit, but you're to be continually filled and refilled with the Spirit. This is an ongoing lifestyle kind of thing. Number three, it's in the passive, which means, which means God is the one who has to fill us, but we're somehow responsible for being open to God that he might fill us. Does that make sense? So this command is to be obeyed, but God is the one who actually does the filling, and it's not a one-time experience. It's a way we walk. Now, when we are filled with the Spirit, certain things follow. And the reason I wanted to use a literal translation is because Paul uses five participles to describe this. Be filled with the Spirit. And then if you go ahead and put up the slide, I want you to see this. He says, be filled with the Spirit, first participle, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. The next two, singing and making music in your hearts to the Lord. Then the fourth one, 
always giving thanks to God the Father, and finally, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. You see each of those participles. What he's saying is, I want you to be filled with the Spirit, and as you're filled with the Spirit, you should be, number one, worshiping, singing, making melody, celebrating Jesus Christ and what he's done in his goodness. A worshiping community, that's what a spirit-filled community looks like. He says, encouraging one another because it's not just a matter of me singing to God. As I sing, as we all sing, we encourage each other. When the choir sung, Be Thou My Vision, they were singing it to God, but they were also singing it to me and to you, and it encourages me and it lifts me up. So when you are filled with the Spirit, you begin to worship. And in the history of the church, every great renewal of the church has always brought about a renewal of singing, people singing and praising God and worshiping Him. But then also, as we sing, as we worship, as we make melody in our hearts to God, we're giving ourselves over to the Lord, and we are all the more brought under the influence of the Spirit. So it's, it's not an either-or. We sing and worship because we've been touched by the Spirit, but we also, as we sing and worship, find our relationship with God through His Spirit deepen and become stronger. The bottom line here is if you want to be filled with the Spirit, you give your life unreservedly to God and you enter into the worshiping, praising, thankful community. Kind of like a big deal nowadays is, is a gratitude journal. Great, great thing to keep because it, it really does help. It really does help your emotional health. You start a gratitude journal because you know you have something to be grateful for. But as you do it, you become more grateful. And so you've got this virtuous cycle set up. And, and you get better and better. In the same way, you come to church and you worship because the Holy Spirit has changed your life. But as you continue to worship, the Holy Spirit continues to change your life. And so what, is, what should we do? We should submit ourselves to Jesus Christ, give our whole lives to him, and allow him to fill us. And we should worship and give thanks. And as we do so, we'll experience greater fullness of the Spirit. Never will we be free of all suffering and struggle and sin, but we'll never be without hope, never without a prayer, never without the ability to continue serving. And our song, no matter how dark the days may be, our song will return and our joy will be everlasting. That's the truth. That's the truth. I need to close. We're going to pray and we'll just dismiss in just a moment. But listen, if you don't know Jesus Christ, I mean, in a, in a true personal way, if you've not, if you've not, receive Christ as your Lord, therefore you've not received the Spirit, please don't take this wrong. I'm just saying what I think is clearly taught in the Bible. You're only half living, maybe not half. Everything you long for 
comes from a right relationship with God, either now or when God redeems us fully in the future. Everything you could possibly want comes from that source. As we pray now, why don't you pray asking Jesus to forgive you and to come into your life and to change you forever? Would you stand with me? We've had a good, a good morning. We have, been, we have been in the Lord's presence. We have been singing and thanking and, and celebrating his goodness, making music in our hearts. We've been doing that. And God's blessing is on our lives. Let's pray and ask that he would fill us full as we leave this place. Lord, we do ask that you would fill us full of the Holy Spirit. May we, filled with your Spirit, be available to you in whatever way you would choose to use us. We want to walk in your sacred presence, and we want your sacred presence to fill us, Lord. In good times and in hard times, we're trusting you. So we pray, God, for your power in our lives, and we pray for those who even in this moment are turning their lives over to you and to your lordship. May you fill them now. In Jesus' name, amen.